It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Welcome into the Rocky Top Talk podcast. I'm Will Shelton alongside Joel Hollingsworth. Tennessee moves to 6-4 and four with a win over North Texas. We're going to spend very little time talking about that. We'll probably touch on it in the, in the back half with Joel and myself. But a sleepy kind of win, 24 to nothing. Defense gets a shutout. North Texas is, is uh, not good. And I know lots of folks were expecting when the line was 41, Tennessee to do more damage. But... I don't think at the end of the year anybody's going to be talking about what Tennessee did or didn't do against North Texas. What they will be talking about, perhaps, is what Tennessee does against a Missouri team that's beaten them three years in a row. And really everything that's happened in the last two-plus weeks here on campus at Missouri and with Gary Pinkle has, uh, has certainly made this a bigger game on, uh, on everybody's radar, including Tennessee's, than it looked like a few weeks ago. And so to talk everything Mizzou, we're joined again by Jack Peglow from Rock M Nation, SB Nation's excellent Missouri blog. Jack, how are you? We appreciate you joining us. I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me on. So what's uh, – I, I feel like th- this is uh, – the, the list of questions I have to ask you is the least detailed of any podcast guest we've ever had in like 121 episodes because it just – I feel like we could spend an hour talking about five or six different things with Missouri. I'm sure you guys have, have – uh, I know you guys have done that in detail on your site. Just what, what's it been like to be a Missouri fan, to be you know connected to that university, the football team, things like that? What's the experience been like for you for the last couple of weeks? Uh, to put it simply, it's been busy. Um, <laughs> we uh, yeah, we had the uh, the players threatening to to boycott the BYU game uh, thanks to their support of campus activities going on uh, that ended up getting taken care of pretty quickly thanks in large part to the player support and then soon after that we had Gary Pinkle announcing that he's going to be retiring after the season uh, he was diagnosed with lymphoma back in May got a bad uh, PET scan uh, a couple weeks back and decided it would be uh, a good time to step back and focus on his health and then Mizzou came out very emotionally charged uh, the offense took a couple big steps forward, and they ended up beating BYU. Now, how much of that is, is actual progress, and how much was them, you know, ready to put everything behind them and, you know, get a win for Coach Pinkle? That's yet to be seen. We'll probably get a better idea of that this weekend coming up. But, but yeah, it's been, it's been quite a bit going on, and, and we've, been, uh, we've been kept busy, and the fans are probably getting a little exhausted because we're going straight from – you know, big social issues to big emotional issues to a big emphatic win, and now we're starting to look at you know who we need to re- look at to replace Gary Pinkle, and they're already kicking up the flight aware searches, checking out flightaware.com. I saw some people <laughs> tweeting the Rock M Nation tonight that there was a flight that went from Columbia to Memphis to Houston. Everybody got real excited about that, but uh, yeah, so it's it's sort of weird that. You know, a big game against Tennessee is is sort of taking a back seat to some of this stuff because it's it is a big game and uh, Tennessee is a really good team. I think the football team at least is probably focusing on them, but not a lot of fans are just with so much going on. So it's it's been busy for sure, but we're uh, we're ready to move, put some of that behind us at least and and talk about some football. Oh, the flight aware brings a smile to the face of many Tennessee fans. I thought we were going to go the whole year on our on our podcast without talking about flight aware. Uh, we are certainly familiar with that. It's like they hit all the stops there at once. You just get one flight to Memphis and Houston, and then you're uh, you're done on your coaching search. There, it's pretty uh, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, the the big three candidates are are you know Herman at uh, at Houston, Fuente at Memphis, and then Barry Odom, who's the the current defensive coordinator on staff. And I think a lot of people like Herman quite a bit. I think Herman's probably going to be out of Missouri's price range, price range, excuse me. Uh, Fuente would be a fantastic hire, but honestly, I'm, I'm all in on Odom. I think he's going to be a great head coach once he gets that gig and he's going to get that gig soon. If, 
if Forte leaves and Missouri doesn't hire Odom, Memphis is probably going to offer Odom the head coaching job, and I'll bet he takes it. But I think Missouri should offer him. I think he'd be a great coach. He played at Missouri. Uh, he knows the players. The players like him quite a bit. And I bet Pinkle makes a big push for Odom because Pinkle's always been a hire from within guy. And uh, I don't know how much of a say he's going to have with the new athletic director, who is from Houston. That's where a lot of people get a Herman connection out of it. But Pinkle will probably make a push for Odom, and we'll, we'll see. But he, I'm all in on him. I think he'd be a great hire. Yeah, do you think the situation itself lends a little bit more with, with Odom in particular? Like, for instance, I lived right outside Blacksburg for six years, and you know, uh, if uh, people always used to think if Frank Beamer kind of went out on he's going out on okay terms, but if he went out on like really really good terms or had kind of a full emotional support, then it would have made Bud Foster a much easier choice um, for the next people going in. Is is this a situation where you're seeing your defensive coordinator get um, a different kind of push because of the specifics with the situation with Pinkle? Because it's not a firing by any means or anything like that. Is that does that kind of move the conversation a little bit more in in his favor? I think that's certainly a part of it, sure. And and another part of it is that Pinkle, throughout his tenure, he's never fired an assistant coach. There have been coaches that wow. have left to take other jobs. But Pinkle has never fired a coach, and he usually replaces coaches that leave with other coaches on staff. That's what he did uh, when Dave Christensen left. He replaced him with David Yost, the quarterback's coach. When Yost left, he replaced him with uh, Josh Henson, who was offensive line and tight ends. Uh, when the, the, the most recent hire was the defensive coordinator when Dave Steckel left, and he brought in Odom, who had been the defensive coordinator at Memphis, but he had previously, before he worked for Memphis, been on Gary Pinkle's staff. He was familiar with the team. And like I said, he played for Missouri back in the day, too. So that was, you know, yeah, technically it was a hire from outside, but he had a lot of Missouri ties to bring back. And part of it is also that Missouri's defense has been fantastic this year. So I think a lot of people would, uh, you know, the, the results are there, maybe not head coaching-wise, but at least success in coaching-wise for Barry Odin to get that spot. And if he gets it, I would bet that he tries to keep Craig Kuligowski on as a defensive coordinator. I think a lot, whoever comes in, they're probably going to try to do that because Odom would be gone. Uh, and he's the best defensive line coach in the country. So that's, you know, another big plus for keeping Odom on staff. Oh, yeah, and, and something we'll talk about in a minute. You know, again, Mizzou, for Tennessee fans that remember, you know, the, the, the Shane Ray, Michael Sam, great defensive ends that gave Tennessee trouble in the past, and then – all of a sudden this year you got two guys coming in that I think a lot of Tennessee fans hadn't even heard of, and they both got seven sacks from defensive ends. So uh, I, I think that certainly goes uh, without saying that they've been very good there. I get a sense, you know, we, we did um, – we talked about South Carolina on our podcast two weeks ago when we played the Gamecocks. They've got an opening. Uh, Virginia Tech, obviously, lots of Virginia Tech conversation, just the proximity between Knoxville and Blacksburg. To me, if I'm trying to figure out how to rank these openings, you got Southern Cal at the top. Miami mm-hmm. is kind of a unique – I feel like not everybody can win uh, at Miami. And I'm sure not everybody can win at Missouri or, or Tennessee or these places. But is, you know, is there an argument that Missouri might be the, the third best kind of opening here? Because I feel like that's a really compelling – Missouri, South Carolina, Virginia Tech, those are similar kind of in, in some ways. And when you talk about the guys you're talking about, those are people South Carolina is talking about, Virginia Tech is talking about as well. Is there an argument that Missouri might be three or even maybe two A just because the Miami job is is so different? The Miami job is really sort of the the wild card of that, and I think it really is going to come down to how much money they're willing to spend. But USC is far and away number one, in my opinion. Uh, I think Missouri can be on par with South Carolina. I think South Carolina may be more willing to spend a little bit more money. Um, But Missouri has a lot of unique aspects to the job that South Carolina does not uh, Missouri has a lot of really good recruiting around them. Missouri is a decent football state, but they also can dip down into Texas, where South Carolina can't really do that as much. Um, and they have, they're sort of the only big program for a wide area. South Carolina has some other schools around them that are also really good, but Missouri is the only school in Missouri that's, you know, that good at football. And then you have, if you're just going spreading out, you sort of have Nebraska and K-State, and then, you know, going the other way, you have Arkansas. But those are pretty far apart. So Missouri is sort of the the big fish in a very big area. So that makes it a little bit different. But I, I think 
depending upon how much they're willing to spend. I, I do think Miami's probably a more attractive job just because it's higher profile. I think Virginia Tech is probably a more attractive position than Missouri. Now, some Missouri fans may argue me, with me about that, but uh, they're they're probably willing to spend a little more money, and they have a more established and probably more well-respected athletic director. Uh, but Missouri's right there with South Carolina, I think. Now, it, it really comes down to, you know, how much money they're willing to spend and, you know, I guess the, the potential coach's preference too. But I think they're right up there with them. You referenced the emotion and everything that went into that win over, over BYU. I am someone that tends to put too much emphasis on that kind of thing, and that's why I'm, I'm really, really worried about Tennessee going into this game and this environment. But I also know that you can – there's only so much of that to go around, and at some point you can kind of be exhausted with it or, or things like that. But this being the first game on campus after the, pro, the protest, the last game for Pinkle on campus, no matter what happens with Arkansas or, or maybe a bowl game, how much of a factor do you expect emotion to be this Saturday, given how much of a factor it just was last week? I think it's going to be huge. This is senior night, uh, and then it's 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 Pinkle's senior night too, if you want to call it that. Right. Uh, it's it's going to, the emotion is going to be very high in Columbia, and that if if that is going to make a difference, then I think Tennessee fans should be worried. But that can only make so much difference, like you were saying, and, and Missouri's offense even though it uh, may be very hyped, is still bad. Uh, and Tennessee <laughs> has a good defense. So Missouri's defense will probably keep them in the game. I'm just not sure how much even an emotionally charged Missouri offense can do. When you look at what Drew Locke was able to do against BYU, when, when you just look at it statistically, it's so much better than anything else. Uh, it, it, it's really mind-blowing. I mean, you're talking about a guy that didn't even complete half of his passes in that losing streak from really Missouri beat South Carolina on October 3rd, then lost Florida, Georgia, Vanderbilt, and Mississippi State. He didn't complete half of his passes. He didn't throw for more than 151 yards. Um, obviously, touchdowns were a big issue. And then all of a sudden, he comes out and completes almost 70% of his passes, 8.7 yards per attempt, and, and a touchdown. Aside from you know just the raw emotion and things like that that we talked about, what was different Saturday for Missouri's passing game? Uh, it really had less to do with the passing game and more to do with everything else. Else, They finally dedicated themselves to the running game. They actually did it more so, or less so, I guess, but they finally dedicated themselves to the running game more against Mississippi State. They ran it 45 times that game, and then against BYU, they ran the ball 55 times, nearly threw it 28. And that alleviating, you know, alleviating the pressure from Drew Locke really allowed him to step back. And more than that, it allowed the offensive line to sort of establish itself a little bit more because the problem has been less Drew Locke and more the fact that Drew Locke doesn't have time to do anything. Uh, he's been uh, he's been on his back quite a bit, but his those clean white jerseys they uh, they were a little bit cleaner at least you know from the running backs and quarterbacks' perspective against BYU. So that was nice to see, and that allowed Drew Locke to sort of make some reads and actually have some time to you know find some open receivers, and it made a big difference. But more so than the passing game, like I said, it was the running game. They finally were able to establish a little bit something. They ran for almost 200 yards, which isn't super impressive, but by Missouri standards in uh, 2015, that's decently impressive. It's their uh, second highest rushing total they've had all season. Uh, that really made a difference, and that's why Drew Locke was able to do a little bit better. Now, do I think he's going to be able to complete 70% of his passes against Tennessee? No, I don't think it'll be close. I think he may be able to reach maybe in the 60 range if Missouri can keep this up, but uh, I would expect that to go down a little bit. Some of the Tennessee fans that, that haven't seen Missouri play a lot just this year and just kind of know the narratives of not scoring touchdowns during that stretch or whatever, it seems like the easy answer is to put a lot of this on the absence of Matty Mock to say, well, you know, they lost him and that's kind of been an issue, but it sounds like what you're saying is you would put more of Missouri's kind of whole year struggles on offense on, on way more than just what's going on at the quarterback position. Honestly, even before Matty Mock got suspended, a lot of us were saying that maybe this is time to, to bench him in favor of Drew Locke. Uh, and he sort of made the decision for everyone, uh, but it was getting to that point where conversations were being had, and I was in support of it, and we even had uh, the the – 
main head honcho of Rockham Nation, Bill Conley, who's usually against, you know, benching the starting quarterback, especially when Missouri fans are usually in favor of doing that just because the, the backup quarterback is always the most popular player on the team, and he's usually the guy that bang the drum against that. But he, even he came out and said, you know what, if this is how it's going to be this year. We might as well, we've already burned his red shirt. We might, we might as well start Drew Locke and get him the experience heading into next year. And then, like I said, Mark took himself out of the equation for us, so we didn't have to make that tough decision. But, yeah, it's been much less the absence of Mark, and it's been way more just the horrendous play of the offensive line. And they're making steps, uh, baby steps at least, but it's way more line than it is Mark. When you look at the other side of the ball, Missouri fourth in the country in yards per play allowed. And this – Again, it's just kind of a, a common theme. Uh, it feels like the last several years that Missouri's just been really, really good on that side of the ball. Again, even if you don't have, you know, SEC Player of the Year defensively or, or high draft picks or things like that that stand out, is is there something that um, that that makes this particular defense uh, better or different than the last two? Or again, is this just Odom and kind of this is this is what Missouri does now defensively? Uh, Odom actually plays a very different defense than uh, Tennessee fans will be used to from the past couple of years. Steckel was more using the defensive line to get pressure and letting everyone else play back. Odom is aggressive as hell. He's going to send blitzes. He sends corners. He sends safeties. He sends linebackers. He sends everyone. He stunts blitzes. He's going to move. There's a lot of moving pieces on his defense. And uh, one of the big changes is that the linebackers are a lot more active. Kentrell Brothers leads the nation in tackles. Uh, he got left off the Buckness Award list, and it's one of the most egregious omissions that you'll ever see in a in a player award, even though they're all kind of dumb. But uh, they're aggressive. They're going to send a defensive lineman. Charles Harris is having an incredible season. He's t- he uh, is tied with Miles Garrett for the conference lead in tackles for loss. He and Walter Brady both have seven sacks. Now, you're not going to see Terry Beckner Jr. He's uh, the really high-rated uh, freshman D, uh, nose tackle, but – he was injured against BYU. He won't be playing against Tennessee. But Josh Augusta's pretty big. He can clog stuff up. But Kentrell Brothers, he's he's an All-American potential linebacker. Michael Shear is also fantastic. They're going to be everywhere. Kentrell Brothers hasn't had less uh, than 10 tackles in a game yet this year. You're going to see him around the ball all the time. He actually had what ended up being sort of the game-winning pass breakup against BYU. They went for a touchdown receiver sort of had it in his hands and brothers knocked it away. So you're going to see him doing a lot. Uh, he's really fun to watch. And the cornerbacks are really fast and really athletic and they do a good job of uh, keeping receivers in front of them and, you know, not allowing big plays. BYU was able to get a couple, but that's because they have really, really tall receivers. I think their shortest receiver was six, seven. So they sort of took advantage of that height matchup, but uh, it's, it's going to be aggressive. You're going to see a lot of players trying to get in the backfield. Uh, and really, if, if you're looking for a key, it's it's keeping the de- the defensive linemen, specifically Charles Harris, out of the backfield and taking advantage of short passes in the flat because the linebackers will sometimes have trouble getting out to cover those kind of things, and that's where you can maybe break a tackle from the cornerback of the safety that gets there first and bust something big. But it's going to be tough. This is a stingy defense, and uh, they gamble a little bit more than you're used to, but so far this season, the gamble's been paying off. They disrupt a lot. They get a lot of tackles for loss, and, uh, you know, they make some big plays defensively. For Tennessee fans, I think two weeks ago, the Mississippi State game is one where, um, again, Tennessee's performance against North Texas not giving anybody the warm fuzzies offensively, but watching Mississippi State have what's probably the most success anybody's had against your defense all year it's it's easy for some Tennessee fans to look at Dak Prescott and say, okay, this is what Josh Dobbs can be or what we want him to be. Um, Prescott really, it looked like, had more success throwing the ball than, than running the ball against what you guys wanted to do. But obviously Mississippi State, 31 points, uh, he was he was really successful. Is there anything in particular about that game, and this may go along with some of what you were just saying, that you feel like uh, exposed or, or was a, was a specific kind of problem for Missouri's defense? Yeah, he really the, – the success that he had was in the passing game. They only – as a team, they only rushed for 127 yards against Missouri, but he threw for 300. Uh, what what did that for him was his ability to run, even though he didn't end up doing it, forced a lot of Missouri's linebackers to play up a little bit more and sort of spy on him and allowed him to find 
receiver sort of in the gap between the linebackers and the secondary. Uh, and Deronia Wilson had a big game. I mean, he's a fantastic receiver, but he's very tall, and he was able to box out some of Missouri's cornerbacks and catch some big pla- big passes, including uh, the big touchdown that he had that was really good pitch and catch. That threw it back off of his back shoulder on a comeback round. He made an incredible adjustment to the ball, but that's what sort of uh, opened the floodgates on that very rainy day, pardon my pun, but uh, <laughs> it's it's if uh, Josh Dobbs wants to find success, he's going to need to use the threat of his running to sort of get Missouri's passing defense out of position and then find receivers, you know, in the cracks that open up. Kind of big picture for Missouri – Tennessee fans, we do this thing. It's very arrogant because Tennessee had so much success in the 90s and the early part of the 2000s where Missouri came in the conference and Tennessee thought, well, that's a win. And obviously it has not been uh, three years in a row. Missouri has won all those games. But there's, I think, a sense still where kind of the narrative from the outside is you look back on Missouri and say, okay, the 2013 team was legitimately great. That was a great football team. Last year, Missouri took advantage of a weak SEC East. They won all the games they needed to win. Probably not as good of a team, but certainly got the job done. And then this year, I feel like, you know, both coming into the year and now there's this kind of shoulder shrug of like, I had no idea they were going to be this good on defense. I had no idea they were going to be this bad on offense. And I still don't know what to make of Missouri now. I don't know what to make of Missouri next year. And so I guess kind of a two-part question. Do you has this Missouri team underachieved, achieved, overachieved? Like how, how different is this compared to where you thought they would be? And then what's the, obviously a lot of this will depend on who you hire as a head coach, but what's the, the outlook kind of going forward? Do you expect this to be a team that is improved next season? Yeah, I think they've maybe underachieved a little bit. Uh, I thought this was probably a seven win team going into the season. Now they could certainly still get there, but it's going to be a real big uphill battle to do that because Tennessee and Arkansas are both very good teams. Um, so if they end up with if, at five and seven instead of seven and five, you know, underachieving a little bit. But after everything that happened on the, you know, with the offensive line not being anywhere near as good as we thought it would be, we actually thought that might be a position of strength going into the season, and that was definitely not the case. And then you know, with Matty Mock leaving, we lost uh, a starting quarterback, and Russell Hansborough was hurt for a good portion of the season. He's only just sort of now getting back up to sort of 100%. So the, the offense really underachieved, and then the defense really overachieved. And this is a very young – it's a young team overall, but it's a very young defense. So they return almost everyone. They only lose really Kentrell Brothers and uh, Kenyon Dennis. And maybe Charles Harris if he decides to go pro, but I, I, I sort of doubt he's going to do that. Uh, they return a lot there. They return a lot of receiver. They obviously return Drew Locke. Uh, the offensive line is going to be different, but after how poorly they've played this year, I don't know how upsetting that is to a lot of people. Uh, this is definitely a team I expect to improve. That said, uh, a lot of the SEC and a lot of the SEC East specifically is also really young, you know, including the team you guys cover. So I expect Missouri to improve, but I also expect a lot of the other teams in the East to improve. So we'll, we'll have to see how things look heading into next year. But I, I think the East is coming up. They're, they're all really young teams. I think it's going to be a good conference next year. So Missouri is going to be better, uh, but so is the rest of the teams that they play. So I'm not sure record-wise uh, what we should expect. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. We've talked about this, I think, almost every week with when we've had an East opponent is the idea of – because Tennessee feels like we've been building towards 2016 with Butch Jones recruiting for all these years, and that's the case. But Georgia, on paper, if they, if they don't have coaching turnover, on paper they should be better. Missouri should be better. Kentucky should be better. Vanderbilt should be better. Um, and the team that's winning the division also should be better. So, right. yeah, it's, it's going to be um, – I feel like it's going to be a similar kind of toss-up next year, but a much a much more well-played uh, kind of toss-up, I think. And, and it sounds like Missouri, again, defensively, will, will have a chance to be in that mix of teams. I guess that's kind of – I guess when you win the East two years in a row, it kind of becomes the, the sort of expectation that you will be in that conversation every year. Yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of Missouri fans at least, didn't expect them to make a run at the East this year. Some people may be, you know, after a lot of people didn't expect that the last two years, we're like, well, we didn't, we didn't think they would in 2013, <laughs> but here they were. But I think a lot of people thought that, yeah, 
sure, we didn't think that those two years, but we still don't think it going into this year. Uh, next year, maybe you can you can think that, but yeah, like we just said, everybody else is getting good too, and you know, Florida, Florida's better than they should be sooner than they should be. So it's going to be tough. I'm I'm not quite sure what I need, what I can predict. Uh, just that, yeah, like you said, it's going to be close, and the level of play should be better, more fun to watch. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Jack, we'll get you out of here on this. What's the what's the one thing that you feel like Missouri needs to do to win this game? And then give us a sense for Tennessee if there is one thing in particular that Tennessee, if if they're able to do X, then they can win this game. Uh, to put it simply, Missouri needs to be able to score points. <laughs> they, <laughs> they need to establish the running game, though, more specifically, because, that, like I said, that's what took pressure off of D-Lock and allowed him to have his best game as a, as a Missouri player. Uh, they need to get the running game established. Russell Hansborough, Ishwitter, and Tyler Hunt need to get the ball moving uh, on the ground. If they can do that, then I think Missouri's offense may be able to find some success. If they can't, I think it's going to be a long day at the shot. Uh, and if you're a Tennessee fan, I mean, that's what you need to do. You need to stop Missouri's offense because if you can just get – honestly, if you're, if you're stopping Missouri's run game, we've, saw, we've seen it before with Georgia. You can win a game with less than 10 points against Missouri. Uh, that's how bad the offense has been. But if Tennessee can stop the running game and then get, you know, get out of there with you know, between 10 and you know, 15 points, that should be a win. Uh, if they can't, they're going to need to score a little bit more, and that's going to be tough against Missouri's defense. But uh, Tennessee has a really good defense. I don't expect to see too much success from Missouri's offense. All right, will be interesting, no doubt. You can find Jack at Rock M Nation. All kinds of great stuff on Missouri football, SEC football, and basketball going on there. Uh, uh, I know you guys have a great podcast there as well. Jack, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. Thanks so much. No problem. I appreciate you having me. All right. Joel, let's uh, bring you back in here. We'll talk uh, a couple minutes. Uh, we kind of breeze over this at the start. Is there anything you want to say about the North Texas game? I mean, like, I, I just don't – we could break down this, that, and the other for a while. But, I, you know, we set them out. We won. I feel like the things that were issues uh, were issues of choice. They didn't run Dobbs by choice. Uh, there may have even been some offensive things they didn't do because of the field condition that's been talked about today. Uh, to me, this is just not a not one to spend too much time worrying over the fact that we beat them by 24 instead of 41. Anything, Joel, that you want to take from that game or, or that we should say about that game? No, I, you know, I think the only thing is that, you know, you, you always take a win. Um, but I think it's okay to uh, go ahead and acknowledge the impact that it has on how you feel about future games because – I don't know. You know, everybody wants to see this uh, killer instinct uh, to put put teams away, to always play your best um, at every moment of every game against every opponent. Um, because if you don't, you can end up losing games that you shouldn't, like we have uh, this uh, year. So I, I understand some of the angst. I feel it myself. Um, but those things will be answered against the next two opponents. And if we win and win pretty well against the next two opponents, then it'll be okay. If we don't, then, you know, I think some of the blame is 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 going to lay on how we played uh, North Texas and, and sort of because it's evidence of how the coaches uh, prepare mentally or schematically for opponents. Yeah, I think that's fair. If, if Tennessee loses one or both of these next two games, then it will certainly come back into the conversation. I, I think, though, there is an argument to be made for this this building narrative of Mike DeBoard and the offense. It kind of also fits that narrative to me to say, if they're about risk management, then, yeah, they didn't run Dobbs, like, at all. I think he had one designed run against North Texas. Um, they, they ran him sparingly uh, against South Carolina, uh, especially once they got the lead. I think that he's banged up. I think he's got, you know, a documented foot injury that is, you know, kind of nebulous in severity. Um, but I also think that, and we'll find out, we should find this out in, you know, the first two series Saturday night. I think they go to Missouri feeling like 
we have to run Dobbs in this game. And there are some things that Jack said there that made me feel very good about what Prescott was able to do in terms of positioning the linebackers. And if linebackers have trouble with the swing pass, my friend, we love the swing pass. You know, like that. I wrote that down on my notes too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that is a good thing for Tennessee. Um, so and you know, maybe it turns into as simple as if Dobbs is healthy, we can execute our offense and we can win this game. If he's not healthy, then we're going to get in a rock fight a little bit with these guys. Um, but I I just feel like there is a sense of um, if we've seen this risk management conservative kind of thing, it makes sense that we saw what we did against North Texas. And I don't think Butch or any of those guys are concerned about winning 24 to nothing. They, you know, Dobbs threw that interception at the end of the first half. They should have had 31. Um, but I don't think anyone was losing any sleep over that over there. But then you, you go back and say, we have to have that to win this game. Uh, and I would expect uh, if, if Dobbs is out there at all, then I would expect him running the football to be a big part of what they want to do, same as it was against Florida, same as it was against Alabama, same as it was against Oklahoma in building that lead, and same as it was uh, against Georgia kind of throughout and getting that comeback uh, especially late. I just I feel like there's a chance that that mindset that we saw against North Texas doesn't automatically have to translate, and, and South Carolina to a degree, doesn't automatically have to translate into, well, here's a good defense, so we're only going to score three points against these guys because we're bad. I think there's a chance that they may um, kind of premeditate what they did against North Texas but then have a, a different kind of game plan and attack that can be more effective against against Missouri, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, if they, if they were saving Dobbs because they knew that they needed him um, and it works, I'm all for that. It just seems to me that it – I think if I was making the call, what what I would have rather done was play at 100% for half the game and then give them the other half off rather than um, playing the entire game at 33%, you know. Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think if um, – I think we had this conversation in one of our comment threads. Health of the offensive line is an issue too. Uh, Deshaun Robertson practiced today. That's a good time, but he hasn't played in two weeks. Um, Brett Kendrick, you know, he did. Chance Hall started last week, so I think there's a sense that against North Texas, same as against um, Western Carolina and Bowling Green, you could trot out the healthy version of this Tennessee offensive line, and you don't need Dobbs to run. You just you can steamroll with Hurd and Kamara and all that stuff. But this version of the offensive line that's beat up, and as a result of that, very thin. I think is making it difficult for Tennessee to just, without the, the threat of Dobbs running, makes it very difficult for Tennessee to just line up and go smash him. And Dobbs is not a good enough passer to kind of negate that advantage the other way around. So, you know, that's a, that, that's a big deal for Tennessee, getting healthy on the offensive line next year too. Dobbs is kind of the equalizer to me in a sense on that offense of being able to make a defense be accountable and, and not just jam everybody up there the equalizer with his legs. Um, but if you take that away, this is becoming a very um, pedestrian kind of offense that doesn't have the quarterback in terms of arm capabilities to make a defense really be honest the other way around. So um, that, that's why, you know, part of me looks at Missouri and sees fourth best defense in the country and is very concerned about that, rightfully so. But then part of me, for everything we just said, the, the issues Missouri had with Mississippi State, and the way Tennessee has played against really good defenses before. I know they didn't throw the ball well against Florida, but they were, effect, they were efficient in, in moving the football down the field. Same as against Oklahoma in building that lead really all day against Georgia when they weren't turning the ball over. And, and Alabama, I know they only scored 14 points, but they had an efficient offense given the quality of the competition so just because we've seen all that before and because these guys that we're talking about, Dobbs, Deshaun Roberts, and Brett Kendrick are, are not out for the year kind of situations, they're in there and they're playing, then I feel like there's just as likely of a chance that Tennessee can roll out that same kind of efficient offense and score enough points that it needs to score uh, this week against Missouri. That, um, is there, you know, like he's talking about, Georgia beat them with nine. Do you have a sense, I don't know if you've looked at the stats preview yet or not, but do you have a sense of, how many points you feel like it would take to, to win this thing? No, I haven't had a chance to look at it at all because I got 
I'm, I'm out of the office, so to speak. Indeed. <laughs> until tomorrow. So um, I'll be able to look at that Thursday morning, and it'll surprise me then. But, you know, the the one thing I'm, I'm concerned about is, yeah, you know, we we uh, we played well against uh, Alabama, um, <clears throat> Florida, but Florida took those trick plays. Um, and Oklahoma, we only played a half. And we went into the hole, that, that familiar hole now, when when they started blitzing and getting aggressive on defense. And that was the other thing I wrote down in my notes from uh, the Missouri guy is that, uh, you know, he said that's one of the things that they uh, do particularly well is, uh, <clears throat> you know, sort of create ha- havoc uh, against the offensive line. And uh, I think we're still vulnerable there. Um, maybe, you know, I, I, I don't know, but it seems to me like we can play straight up pretty well, but, uh, if a defensive line or, or a front seven starts getting, uh, particularly nasty or starts running a little more complicated, uh, stunts and things, uh, then that's where we really struggle and, uh, pretty concerned about that. Uh, but again, I, I don't know about the stats. I, uh, I don't. I won't know until uh, Thursday morning when I sit down or look at them and write it. I think the other question with that is because I mean you're right, and since when Oklahoma changed things up, um, not making adjustments and not being able to then keep defenses honest has has been a big deal. I would just question, you know, if if let's say the script plays out exactly the way everyone. Uh, dreads, which is Tennessee gets a two-touchdown lead and then they go back to conservative. Missouri's offense is just so much worse than, you know, uh, almost everyone we've seen this year. Uh, Vanderbilt would be the comparison, but we haven't seen Vanderbilt yet. So, you know, we're not even talking about um, Kentucky or, uh, you know, South Carolina, I think, was a much more functional offense. Again, Missouri uh, had a had a the the best day they've had last week. So we'll see if they've made real progress. But even if even if Tennessee's up fourteen to nothing, Missouri's capability of coming down the field against Tennessee, uh, I'm I'm just not sure about that uh, either. So um, yeah, they, they they don't have Baker May- Mayfield. Um, <laughs> number one, and then two, if there's something that this uh, coaching staff does really really well is it's authoring, scripting, writing, however you want to put it, 14 points. Yeah. Um, they can do that. Yeah, Baker Mayfield making – well, everybody made Tennessee look good Saturday except Tennessee. But, um, yeah. you know, that dude uh, is slippery. And uh, you just oh, – it's such a – it's both a validating and a frustrating thing to watch Alabama and Arkansas and Oklahoma just give three top 20 teams the business at home. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and, you know, validating in terms of Tennessee going toe-to-toe with all three of those teams this year. Florida, of course, also, you know, wraps up the East at 7-1. and one. Um, But just really, really validating in terms of how good Tennessee actually is and then simultaneously incredibly frustrating at how close they were in all three of those games to getting that win. So, um, you know, it's just a, it's a weird year. We, you know, in the comments on one of our stories today, we've talked about comparing it to, to 2001 or, or 2006. I feel like this is going way back for some of you younger listeners, but 1992 where the, the, the um, rhythm of it was totally different because Tennessee started 5-0 and that year and beat Florida and Georgia, but Tennessee lost three games by 10 points. Uh, and they weren't – one of them was to national champion Alabama. The other two were to Arkansas and South Carolina that weren't that good. But there was that sense of look at what we could have had, and we gave it away by one play and uh, maybe more than one play against Alabama, but one play in, in all these games. So, um, you know, that, that's why, again, it's important for the narrative of the overall season for Tennessee to take care of business this week in a very emotionally charged, difficult environment, win this game, win next week, get to your bowl game, and still make progress. So you're able to continue this momentum forward and turn this into uh, what it's about next year uh, instead of just having – I guess I would say you, you want progress and momentum to be the, the last word on this season and not frustration. 
And for that to be the case, I think Tennessee is, is still going to have to win these next two games. And then we'll see who the bowl is and where it is, and, and then we can have that conversation. But I, I just feel like that is, um, that's going to be the case. Do you, Joel, do you agree with that? I do. Um, I think, though, that we, we probably need to acknowledge a little bit that we had a favorable schedule, I think, this year. Um, so I think we caught uh, Florida early before they got really, really good. Um, I think they were pretty good then. Uh, but I think they're better now. Um, I think Arkansas is better now. We caught no Alabama, Alabama at the uh, end of a really long, hard stretch, and so that made that game a little bit easier for us. I, you know, I'm not saying we didn't play well and that we couldn't have beat them and that we uh, aren't a really, really good team. It's just that uh, I think there's a, a few schedule factors in there too. Joel's bringing it back down to earth. It's probably it's probably what it needs. Um, and we can't have this conversation anyway if Tennessee doesn't win the next two games. So um, that's that's kind of where it will be going forward. Um, yeah, if, if Missouri had an offense, I'd be scared to death about this game. Yeah. Yeah, I, and listen, I, there's part of me that is still scared to death about these games. I am, and freely admit this, I, am, I overemphasize emotion and um, those kinds of things. And so there's a part of me... Like if if this was if this was a non-Tennessee game in the Pick'em, I'm taking the team playing at home with the coach who's retiring with cancer in his last game. I'm taking that team 100% of the time, you know. Um, and that team probably doesn't win 100% of the time, but I, I am a big believer in that kind of aspect of what's going on. Uh, so um, that still scares me, and that's why I think. We can still have the talking points about what the offense did or whatever, depending on how it goes. But if Tennessee wins this game by one point, I'm taking it, and I'm happy about it. Um, that that has changed just because of the circumstances changing at Missouri to me, that particular dynamic of it. Um, but, yeah, I think um, – and that's why I wrote on Sunday. I think it's a big challenge for Tennessee in terms of being tough enough to go on the road and win one of these games. So – Next year, when we're going to Athens or we're going to Texas A&M, uh, and it's a difficult, it, it's an important and meaningful game for us, and it's going to be hostile and all that stuff, we can say, hey, remember when we went to Columbia last year for Pinkle's last game and we won? Um, and, and that can carry through because right now for Butch Jones, the biggest win he has on the road is at South Carolina last year. Um, and that was a huge deal at the time, but that – that game um, and that environment, it's not going to be what it is this Saturday uh, and will not be the sort of test that we'll see next year on the road in the biggest game. So they've played well. I think they played well at the Swamp and they played well in Tuscaloosa this year. Um, but, you know, getting a win in that kind of environment, that would be a great thing to accomplish now and check it off the list um, and not have to have a conversation next year in these big games about can Tennessee win on the road uh, in this in this kind of environment, so again, I tend to I tend to factor all those things in a little more than everyone. But I, I would agree with you, Joel. I think if if Missouri had if we weren't able to just keep going back and saying, yeah, but this team is really bad on offense, um, then I think a, a lot of these things are trending much more strongly in Missouri's direction. Yeah, I agree with that. Um... I'm glad that their uh, offense is struggling. I, I don't know how much the uh, the change in quarterback, uh, how much difference that makes. That's a little bit of a concern. I would like to see some maturity from uh, from the from the team to you know battle all of those extra intangibles that are going to be there in Columbia. Um, I w- you know I, I'd kind of like to see somebody do a study on whether those kinds of things um, actually cut the way that we think they cut. Um, you know what I'm saying? Where where there's so much motivation, you know, um, saying goodbye to a coach, playing for the coach, um, the team, you know, getting together, all these different intangibles that you just sort of assume are all positive on uh, outcomes and performance. I wonder if they really are. Do you have yeah. any feel for that? No, I was trying to go back and remember, you know, if, if a coach gets fired, 
to me, it's a very different demographic. But I would include um, situations like Fulmer and Bobby Bowden where the termination took place or, or, or the forced resignation took place earlier in the season and you still at the end, you know, Pinkle's been there 10 years. So you, you still at the end had this kind of sense of, uh, of who that person was to the program and, and uh, all of that stuff. So uh, I'll have to go back and look and see what I can find on that um, and well, see yeah, just kind of how it works. There's at least mixed results with Fulmer because you had, the, you know, the week it happened, it was the loss to, my, to Wyoming. Um, but then they, uh, you know, they carried him off on their, sho- on their shoulders against what was the last game, Vandy? Uh, Kentucky. They beat Vandy at Vandy, and then they beat Kentucky in Knoxville. Okay. Um, but then there was a there was a bowl game for was it was it Michigan? Was it Florida? Who who said goodbye to their coach? Lloyd Carr beat Tebow. Uh, I think. Let me let me look this up before I say it. But I think Lloyd Carr beat Tebow's the year we won the East. Um, that they, yeah, they beat Tebow's Florida team in the Citrus Bowl, Capital One Bowl back then, uh, in Lloyd Carr's last game. Um, so you know you get you get some of that, and and it's more like you know this isn't Gary Pinkle's last game. Um, it's his last game at home. Um, I'm trying to look and see. Um, they lost they lost to Ohio State in Lloyd Carr's last game at home. Um, now that Ohio State team went on to play for the national championship, and then they got hammered by LSU. Um, but you know there are some others uh, I, I'm trying to think of that um, that stand out in particular. Um, it's funny because you don't usually coaches don't retire anymore, <laughs> not right. voluntarily. I know, right? So we're going to get a lot of examples. Like we're going to get Pinkle, we'll get Beamer. Uh, Saturday is Beamer's, and that's another one. You know, North Carolina ranked 12th in the country. Um, only lost to South Carolina in the season opener. Um, but they're in Blacksburg this week for Beamer's last home game. And, I mean, I, that's um, – I, I would lean towards Virginia Tech in that game just because I uh, – you know, I, you get the sense that you, uh, that you just wouldn't bet against them if it was me. I would not bet against them uh, in, that, uh, in that particular demographic. Um, Bowden's last home game, they beat Maryland. Uh, I don't know how good that Maryland team was, 29 to 26. They got hammered by number one Florida in the swamp, um, but they beat a ranked West Virginia team in the in the Gator Bowl. Um, so look, I, if Missouri wants to win their bowl game, great, fantastic, you know. Uh, but it's it's more that kind of last home game sort of thing. But I would agree, and this is this is true for anything, for any sport, for any situation. Why teams that make a run in college basketball and a big comeback run often don't have what it takes to finish the game. There's just only so long you can run on emotion. Um, Right. So I was encouraged also, you know, I I got a sense of it watching the BYU game last week, but you didn't really get the sense of it until the game was over because it was a neutral site game. But to hear him talk about how emotional everything was last week, um, that maybe there's a sense, not, not that they got it out of their system, but that you you just can only you can only go back to the well so many times um, on pure emotion, and when you don't have an yeah. offense to go with it, you know it makes me feel a little better. Yeah, and I didn't watch that game, but it wasn't exactly neutral, wasn't it? Wasn't it Arrowhead or something? Right, right. So yeah, not neutral, but it was in Kansas City. Yeah, so so a quote unquote, I think they play a game at Arrowhead every year, but a, a quote unquote home game, um, but not on campus. Yeah. <clears throat> So still in front of a partisan crowd. Indeed. Okay. Uh, speaking of, before we go, did you go to the game, the Tennessee game on Saturday? I did. Speaking of, of home crowds, uh, anything you want to say about the grass? Like there's a big, Jimmy Hyams tweeted this or, or wrote this like scathing thing today about Tennessee's, uh, I, I would encourage uh, anyone to, uh, we can link it on our site, but I would encourage folks to, you can just, uh, uh, at Jimmy Himes on Twitter and find it there on uh, the Sports Animals website about how just the the university refused to talk to him uh, multiple times, and so he just kind of went at him uh, about what he had heard in terms of the quality of professors that Tennessee has at the Ag Campus 
that are being consulted by everybody else but not being consulted by Tennessee. Uh, you got a new groundskeeper who I'm sure is not trying to make the field look terrible, but this is a rough week to be that guy. Um, and, you know, the, the grass always looked immaculate no matter what the season was with the old groundskeeper, and now they've done different things. Um, it's it's And, you know, everybody, not me, because my grass is super long right now, I'm not going to lie, but lots of dudes who watch football are also, you know, care greatly about the quality of their lawn. So on our side and on message boards, you know, you're getting lots of, uh, you know, or, or lots of golfers that, uh, you know, like, like to talk about what they know of the difference between Bermuda grass and rye grass and all that stuff. But it's just a mess. Uh, and Himes put in there that he had a source saying that Tennessee had plays in their offense that they weren't calling because of the, uh, the, the turf situation. I don't know how much of that is, is 100% accurate or whatever, but that's a mess. And I'm sure they'll get it fixed by next year, but it, it's, uh, it's not good for, for last week or, or Vanderbilt next week. I just I, Folks are talking about that. I wanted to put all that out there. Do you have a, a thought on that whole situation? I haven't read Himes' article. Um, I did read the comments on the thread during one of my CLEs today. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, you know, I was at the uh, um, shoot. What was what was the game before uh, North Texas? South Carolina. Okay, so South Carolina. I I didn't realize it watching that game live. Um, how many times our guys slipped? I didn't realize it until I got home and watched it. Watched the replay. Yeah. Uh, just how much we slipped. So it was in my mind, and I was talking to the guy that I always sit next to uh, during the North Texas game about it, you know, and then it sort of it's, – it's become a growing conversation. And then once you recognize it, then you can't focus on anything else. You yeah. Know? So, you know, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of slips uh, against uh, North Texas. The um, – you know, a lot of plays just didn't go anywhere for both teams because – uh, they got turf tackled, you know. Um, so I don't know. You know, my my suspicion, um, if the this is just a working theory, uh, but if the uh, university is not talking about it to Hyams, they're protecting somebody, and I bet the person they're protecting is Butch Jones. And I bet he doesn't know grass. And I bet he said something like, uh, you know, the, the comment that really struck me and again I don't know if this is true or anything but the comment that struck me in in the comments uh, on Rocky Top Talk today were that uh, they had heard that Butch wanted the grass green for the recruits okay and Ah. I can can just imagine him saying yeah it's hard for me to sell brown grass and I know uh, from living in Florida that 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 grass that they use for golf courses, it's the best grass in the summer and the worst grass in the winter because it's ugly brown in the winter. Um, but during the summer, there's nothing better. Um, so I can imagine him him saying, okay, you know, basically sticking his nose into somebody else's business and exercising the leverage that he has to get a bad result, even though he got advice against it, that's my guess. Yeah, that's an interesting theory. I, you know, I again, uh, I am the last person who should be giving anyone opinions or whatever about grass or, or situations. I do remember in the '90s, like Kentucky, which is you know, a little further north from us, uh, and I would imagine Kentucky is committed to using bluegrass. But um, the Kentucky would have when we would play them in November, their field would be brown. And I think the SEC, I don't know this, I think the SEC office had to step into them and be like, hey, if you want games to be televised, paint it. Do something different. Like, you're, you're, it would just be brown. Uh, I think if you go back and look for, like, old, maybe even, like, sophomore Peyton Manning clips or something, it, that's just how it used to be. Um, and now so much has changed with all that stuff. You've got a lot of high schools that you, Dalcoa put in, um, the, that sport turf kind of artificial stuff. I think Tennessee fans in general like having grass and, and enjoy that being part of the thing. But, um, you know, this kind of thing has got to create some change. So regardless of, of you know, if that's true, whatever the case may be, I would expect there to be some change. But there's not going to be any change for two weeks from now. So, uh, yeah, yeah, they, they – um, it, it was 
I think again, read that, read the Himes piece, everybody, and you can. I'm just kind of poorly paraphrasing it, but there was a sense that he had asked to talk to Dave Hart and also I think the groundskeeper and someone at the ag campus. And the the reply he got back from the university's PR person was, "What do you want them to say?" Um, and, and I appreciate that kind of from a professional sense of not having one person in the university take a shot at somebody else. Um, and you know, and yeah, it looks awful and is awful and everyone is aware of that. So running it down, isn't necessarily going to do anything different and you can't do a whole lot from what I understand between now and the Vanderbilt game to make it better. Um, but yeah, I will say say if my theory is true, then the way out of that is to have Butch Jones come out and say it. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be the case. He did say in either after the game or on Monday, he was like, you know, he's not an expert on grass, which, again, I'm not either. Uh, so maybe he would be more willing to do that if that was the case. But no matter what, I'm sure that will be an interesting – and, and maybe that goes back into the vault of, well, we struggle against North Texas because our field is basically quicksand. So, you know, it's uh, – yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was trying to even think of the right – my wife and I were trying to think of the right analogy watching – looking at it by the end of the game. I mean, it looked like – it looked like a dartboard, like a well-used dartboard. It just holds everywhere. Uh, and, yeah, you know, especially like the bullseyes in the middle, so the, the line and all that stuff there in the middle. Um, there was a punt that left a divot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it just uh, – and one of the things, too, that Himes mentioned in that article is they don't play the um, – all the Knoxville high school football teams used to play their jamboree in Neyland Stadium a week or two before Tennessee's first game. And I mean, they did that for years and years and years. And they stopped doing that a couple of years ago, which again, this may be Butch Jones and or Dave Hart, um, to, uh, to, to keep the quality and the integrity of the field from getting messed up before Tennessee's first game, which is a big, look, if you're a Knoxville high school kid on any, any one of those football teams, first string, second string, third string, how cool is it to play in Neyland Stadium? You know, yeah. that's a that's a big kind of local PR loss there. Uh, so that's that's something. You know, even as I'm from Alcoa, we have our own Blunt County Jamboree thing. But just as someone from the area, uh, I would love to see that come back, just because I know how much that means to to, to lots of local folks. So uh, there's a lot of I would encourage everybody to go check that out. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. And when the university is only offering silence then right now that report is kind of all we have to go on. So uh, it was um, – it, it is – I told Chris Tinley earlier, it's, it is, like, noteworthy how aggressive uh, the, the reporting is on this. So, um, anyway, food, food for thought as we, uh, as we go forward. This is interesting. All right. Indeed. All right, you can check out uh, Jack Peglow. Our thanks to him for joining us. Check him out at Rock M Nation. All kinds of great stuff. Bill Conley's there. Lots and lots of other good writers there as well. They do great stuff with SEC basketball uh, as well, as does uh, – we'll have Anchor of Gold on next week. They do great stuff for SEC basketball too. Uh, but you can check out them for all things Mizzou this week. We will continue to cover all things Tennessee. Vols are in action in basketball Thursday night against Marshall. Uh, tough loss last night for Tennessee against Georgia Tech. But if anyone is listening to this podcast and hasn't seen any action of uh, the Asheville game or the Georgia Tech game, and especially if you are a person who didn't particularly enjoy last year and didn't, you know, was, was not a fan of Conzo Martin's style of play, just watch like one segment, one media timeout to media timeout. This is a whole different animal uh, going on right now, uh, and it is sometimes incredibly sloppy um, and, and uh, needs some work. But, man, I mean, they just go, and uh, it, it, um, it will be more entertaining whether or not it is more winning. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, it's, it's a whole different product on the floor, uh, and it's, uh, it's jarring how different it is. So uh, the game Thursday night, unfortunately, is only available on the, the uh, mysterious SEC Network Plus online. But we'll have a live thread for all that if you are uh, listening and, and want to follow along with us on Thursday night. Then, of course, Tennessee and Missouri Saturday night. Uh, in uh, Columbia. We've got our bowl projections post up as well. Right now, the six projections we use are sending Tennessee to five different bowl games in the SEC's group of six, so we don't know anything, uh, but we're, we're talking about what it is that, uh, that we do and don't know. So uh, you can find all that stuff on our site this week. 
Our thanks again to Jack Peglow. We'll be back next week to talk Tennessee and Vanderbilt and some more basketball stuff as well. For Joel Hollingsworth, I'm Will Shelton. Thanks for listening. And this has been the Rocky Top Talk podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.